All right, well, it's been, uh, I kind of knew this was going to happen. We, as you know, recently had a baby. Things went well, but it's kind of led to a, a six-week or maybe more gap in between tonight, Lesson 24, and then Lesson 23, the previous lesson, which I'm sure you all remember everything that was about, right? And a lot's changed. We have a new sound system between those times, so I'll go without a microphone today. I still don't fully know how to turn it all on and get it all up to speed, so I do need to learn that for an occasion such as this, but I think it'll be okay. But anyway, you know, we're doing this Wednesday evening Doctrines of Grace study for a while, and we're, we're nearing the end. And at the same time, I, we were wrapping up the section on the atonement, and I knew our, our baby was coming, at which point I was going to take a, you know, a little bit of time off, some, a few extra Wednesday nights off for a form of a little paternity leave. I knew that was coming, but nevertheless, I still chose to launch us into a new section, which was Lesson 23, the last lesson on grace. Remember, we're organizing this study around TULIP, the, the five points of Calvinism, in contrast to the five points of Arminianism, looking at both sides just to, to study, to learn more what the Bible says about God's role and man's role in salvation. What are they? And we've covered the, the T, total depravity, the U, uh, unconditional election, the L, limited atonement. And I figured I knew a break was coming, but I said, well, let's just start into the I, irresistible grace. And so we did that, lesson 23, and that's as far as we got. And then the baby came, and we took a little bit of an extended break. And all that's fine. It is what it is. But nonetheless, it does mean this is a study in contrast. We're looking at both sides of a, an old debate here. And so everything we studied in Lesson 23, it's really helpful if that's on the front of your mind when we're getting into what we're going to talk about today. So all this goes to say that I have to give you another one of these Big recaps up front, just to help you get back up to speed. I think it's worth it. We've been away for a little while. Some of you might be joining us new, and this will hopefully get you a little up to speed, although we've covered a lot of ground, but nonetheless, here's where we are kind of tonight. So we're, we're starting now into the subject of God's grace in salvation. You know, the I in TULIP. TULIP is an acronym summarizing the, the five points of these doctrines of grace, and the I stands for irresistible Grace, which is in contrast to the Arminian view, which is obstructible grace or resistible grace. Both Calvinists and Arminians affirm that salvation is by grace, not of works. That's good news. That apart from God's grace, uh, none can be saved. But the question is, how exactly does God's grace work in the sinner? What does God's grace really do to enable or bring about our salvation? And a key question, can this grace be resisted or is it sovereign? If God gives us grace, can it be resisted or, or not? Well, last time, Lesson 23 was all about both introducing you to the topic overall, but then we spent most of our time surveying the Arminian position, which is uh, their view of grace, which, which really center out, centers around their notion of what's called prevenient grace, prevenient grace. They believe salvation by grace through faith, that apart from God's grace, none could be saved. Again, that's good. That's important. And in addition, classical Arminians, they even affirm what Calvinists do in one sense. Namely, they affirm total depravity, that all people have been affected by the fall. And that's limited their ability to know God, to choose God, to do good. But as we learned, even though they, they on paper affirm that, they quickly insert 
this notion of what they called prevenient grace. And what this grace does, in effect, it basically erases all the effects of the fall and total depravity on all people. It's universal. God gives this grace to everyone on the planet, and it essentially erases all of the negative effects of the fall and of total depravity. This grace is prevenient. That just means preceding. It comes before salvation. But this is not really saving grace, per se. It's best to think of this as enabling grace. This grace does not save the one it's given to. It rather enables them to save themselves by choosing Christ. Also, this prevenient grace is universal. It's given to all people, not just the elect, but everyone receives this grace. And a key attribute of this grace for the Arminian is that it's resistible. You can say no. You can turn it away. You can resist it. Even after you've received it, you can give it back. You can, you can lose your salvation. We'll talk about that later. So with this in mind, last time we, we also evaluated prevenient grace according to Scripture. And there we found it. It's just not in Scripture. It, it's literally not a biblical doctrine or, or an idea. It's completely absent. That There's no mention of any type of universal grace in Scripture that erases depravity and the fall and the effects of sin on the mind and the will. There's just nothing there. Rather, prevenient grace, it's a product of, of logical necessity. It must exist to keep the Arminian system af- afloat. And so instead of being just a biblical doctrine, they've imported human reason into Scripture. This, this seems reasonable. This, this has to be if, if their system is to continue. But as we learned, all the arguments for this grace that it's given to all people, it erases the effects of the fall, they're all just inferred. They're implied. There's no, there's no chapter and a verse you can point to that says, here's prevenient grace. There's nothing there. The burden of proof is on them and and is lacking. And to the contrary, last time we also affirmed, you look at the picture of the New Testament especially, even after Christ's atonement, and it sure seems like original sin, total depravity, and the fall are are still kind of a big deal, that they do still affect all people before Christ. Like There's no concept in the New Testament that, that, that used to be a big deal, but then prevenient grace came along and kind of erased all that, so we're good. We now are totally free to choose God. There's no notion of that. Rather, the New Testament is always consistent in presenting the sinner right now, before Christ, that they are still presently enslaved to sin and Satan, blind to truth, spiritually dead, and just bound in rebellion against God. That There's no hint of, of the fact that, you know, people, they, they used to be depraved sinners, but that's all been fixed by prevenient grace. Just, there's nothing there. Scripture is so consistent that people are still lost, dead. And you know what they really need is special grace. They need saving grace. They need sovereign grace. Arminians pay lip service to the problems of the fall, original sin, depravity. But their, their big issue is to really secure the glory of man's free will. And so they insert prevenient grace to kind of write off these issues. Like, okay, we've dealt with depravity in the fall. This grace fixes all that. And it allows them just to continue to uphold the, the horse that's driving this cart. And that's 
free will, this fundamental libertine free will. But in contrast, you know, Arminians, they, they don't take seriously the effects of the fall and total depravity. But in contrast, as we've learned, Calvinists do. They understand that apart from God's sovereign intervention, because of the fall, because of original sin, because of total depravity, and, and by the way, if those concepts are kind of new to you, we studied those in great detail at the beginning of the study, which is on our, our existing website. But anyway, because of these problems, no one would choose to turn to God on their own, because no one could choose to turn to God on their own. Man is unable to believe on his own. He can't raise himself from spiritual death to life. He doesn't want to, but more fundamentally, he doesn't have the ability. It's not within his ability or power to choose God, to to come to life, to see the gospel, to believe. Rather, a supernatural transformation is needed if man is to believe in Christ. It's true. To be saved, you must repent and believe. Salvation is by faith. But scripture also teaches that the only way people can or will choose to believe is if God makes them new, is if he he changes them. A work of special grace is needed. And so we're going to talk now about this special grace. Scripture teaches this special grace, it is preceding, that's true, it goes before salvation, but it's also particular that this grace is not given to everyone, but only to the elect. And lastly, this is a saving grace. When this grace is given, it saves the person. It, it, it guarantees their salvation and it irresistibly accomplishes the salvation that God intends with this grace. And so now we're going to, I hope that I hope that helps you get a little bit more up to speed from, you know, we've taken a break. This is what we were studying. We're getting into God's grace in salvation. How does it really work? How does it How does it save us? We all say we're saved by grace through faith, okay? But how exactly? And we're going to find out now. We've studied last time the Arminian view. Now we're going to contrast that tonight with uh, what's understood as the Calvinist view of grace, God's grace. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Now Calvinists, this is really a distinction that goes back all the way to Augustine. Remember that name, Augustine, really a precursor to the these doctrines of grace. Even back as far as him, he made a distinction between two biblical forms of God's grace, and that's common grace and special grace. You heard those terms before? I bet most of you have common grace, special grace. These are scriptural distinctions. And so we're going to begin by looking first at common grace. And here's where your notes begin. You can follow along a little bit if you like, and Mark has more copies in the back if you need. So Calvinists do acknowledge that there are some forms of God's grace that extend to all people. That there is an aspect of God's grace that is universal. That is applied to all people without exception. Believers, unbelievers. And this is common grace. The term kind of tells it to you. It's common grace. This may be defined as God's goodness to all people. This grace consists of God's general care, concern, and provision for all of his creatures. God made the planet, and by his power, he sustains the planet. He enables life on earth 
to continue to exist, to flourish, and for people to enjoy life, all people. This is his common grace to to people, that he gives them good things, he fills their cup and their heart, he delays his judgment, Uh, even though all people are under God's wrath, they can enjoy a measure of uh, joy in this life. These are forms of God's grace, common grace. We're going to take a lot of time with this because I trust it's it's basic, and I know most of you know this. But briefly, let's let's cover some you know three main expressions of God's common grace. First, the gift of life, like like I was saying, the gift of life. It's only by God's grace, through His work in sustaining His creation, that life on earth exists and and flourishes. He created life. He sustains life, animal and human. He provides all the basic necessities for life on earth to continue. Scripture attributes this to God and his grace, giving of of food and water, of means of gladness to his creatures. I mean, think about the nations, all the nations living in rebellion against God, worshiping idols, deserving judgment, but God still gives them the gift of life. They can have a, a good crop, plentiful food. They can multiply in wealth, have children, All things which can bring them a measure of joy and happiness in this life. Do they deserve any of that? Living in rebellion against their holy creator? They don't deserve anything good, but they still receive some good from God. And this is common grace. So, again, I'm going to be quick, so I'll read most of these verses to you. But Psalm 33, 5, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. And Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all, his mercy over all his works. You might remember Matthew 5, 44, where Christ said to love your enemies. And he himself gave as a reason, a justification for you to love your enemies. God does the same. He loves his enemies in a measure, right? Where he said, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And these are meant to be taken as good things, the sun, the rain, providing crops, providing life. On the good and the evil, God sustains them all and enables them to live. That's a form of God loving his enemies, his common grace. Again, Luke 6.35, Love your enemies, Christ said, even God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. There are more examples here, like James 1.17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, from God. So God is, he does, and this is by grace, you know, the definition is undeserved. So he shows a measure of favor or grace to all people in this basic way. The second way God shows grace to all is in the restraint of sin. Another aspect of his common grace it says, restraint of sin and evil on the earth. Now you may be thinking like, well, are you sure? Because it seems like the earth is pretty full of sin and evil, and it is. But understand, Scripture teaches if God was not restraining sin and evil, things would be much worse. An example would be the time before the flood. One of the means by which God restrains evil is through government. We'll read in a second, Romans 13 is a divine institution in general by which through the sword, he punishes evildoers and puts a check on wickedness. 
But before the flood, God had not given government. Man had not made government. And that helps explain why before the flood, it was, it was crazy times. It was anarchy on earth and violence everywhere. And similarly, during the tribulation, Scripture speaks of God's restraining influence in whatever form it might be being removed. And that helps explain also why the tribulation time is, is so bad. As, it's as bad as it is. So in a few examples here, like Genesis 20, verse 6, 1 Samuel 25, 26, where God kept Abimelech from sinning against Sarah, and he kept David from shedding blood. Different times where God, through providence, restrained people from sinning. And then like Romans 13, like I said, verse 1, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God, Verse 4, for government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. We often think of wicked governments, but even wicked governments, to a degree, restrain evil uh, on the earth. And in a sense, God, well, in a, in a clear sense, God has ordained governments and given them his authority to put a check on evil and to restrain evil. Anyway, that's just a a means of God's common grace, the restraint of evil. Lastly, the delay of judgment. The delay of judgment. Again, it's undeserved. So by God not judging people instantly, that's a form of common grace. And again, because all have sinned and fallen short of his glory, all deserve judgment. And in God's holiness and righteousness, They deserve instant judgment. We don't think of that that way. We're so used to it. But if God were being nothing but just, all people will be judged at birth, at conception even. In fact, going even even further back, no one would even be born. Because after Adam and Eve sinned, they would have been instantly judged and, and, and they would have perished immediately in the garden. But of course, we know God had a bigger plan of redemption, which necessitated leaving people to live out their days in sin. And this delay of God's judgment is a form of his mercy, as it allows wicked people to, one, live out their days and enjoy life to a degree. And also, it gives the wicked time and a chance to repent, to believe, to turn, change their ways before they perish forever, at which point there is no second chance. And that is a form of God's mercy. The fact that you're still alive, that for the unbeliever, I'm thankful that, you know, the world didn't end in 2000 because then I would have perished. I didn't come to salvation until 2001. And that's a means of God's common grace. It's been said that for those who don't repent, this world is the closest they'll ever get to heaven. And for those who do repent, this world is the closest they'll ever get to hell. Uh, But the, the fact that you have time and chance so to speak, you have an, a, a time window to repent and believe as a form of common grace. A few verses here, you know, Genesis 8, that's after the flood, and God committed to not do this anymore. It's not the answer, obviously, he did that for a clear purpose, but to just wipe out the earth every so often, it doesn't change our nature, that's not as obviously his plan of redemption Um, He was going to show grace and leave man, even if wickedness would be multiplied, he was going to delay his final judgment 
for his greater purposes. And then Romans 2.4 talks about God's kindness towards sinners and leading them to repentance. Romans 9.22 speaks of God's patience toward vessels of wrath. And just God is patient. We all deserve judgment, but his, patient, his patience prevails for now. All right, so these are just some basic means by which Calvinists affirm that there's an aspect of God's grace that is given to all people. Universal grace. But it's important to remember this common grace is limited. It does nothing to save people. It does nothing to change people's nature. It doesn't address the sin problem, and it does not draw anyone to Christ. It's very much a non-saving grace. But it's just God's general kindness to mankind. Now this comes in contrast to a second form of grace, a distinction that Calvinists make, which we would call special grace. Common grace, now special grace. Goes by many names, you see there in your notes. Effectual grace, sovereign grace, irresistible grace. God knows that man, on his own, will never believe. Because of the very real and deadly effects of the fall and original sin and total depravity, which we've studied a ton, because of all that, man on his own will never look upon Jesus and be saved. Man, apart from God, is spiritually dead, blind to the truth, enslaved to sin and Satan, and in a permanent state of sin and rebellion against God. We've established that you know, countless times now. That man does not have the power or ability to change his own state. He's truly lost. And so if anyone's going to be saved, God has to intervene. He's going to have to do something himself. He's going to have to, you know, make some action, make a move, step off the throne, send Jesus, do something to save us. And this is where special grace comes in. Grace, again, the term grace refers to God's unmerited favor toward man. And God must show some unmerited favor to these lost and dead sinners. He's going to have to do something pretty drastic, though, because they're lost and dead sinners. They can't do anything on their own. And so that's what he does through special grace. Again, it's called special to distinguish it from common grace in several ways. For example, common grace is universal. It's given to all people without exception. But special grace is particular. This is a grace that God only gives to the elect, those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation, Ephesians 1. It's another, another subject we've studied a ton in the past. Common grace is non-salvific, meaning those who receive it, it does not result in their salvation. But special grace is salvific, meaning if God gives you special grace, you're going to be saved. It will result in your salvation. This is saving grace. And also, both common grace and special grace are acts of God's sovereign will. They're both sovereign. But at the same time, we sometimes call special grace sovereign grace because it cannot be resisted. And this is why it's sometimes referred to as irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. If God is, is determined to bring a sinner to life, it's going to happen. None can thwart his will and his holy plan. Now that being said, 
Many opt for a better term. So remember, the, the I in tulip is for irresistible grace. Most people today opt for the term effectual grace. Effectual grace. Why? Well, it's true that irresistible grace, that term can be a little misleading because it, it, it can imply that God overrides our will as if he's like bringing us, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Like, we don't want to go. We love our sin. He just drags us there anyway against our will. That's not actually what happens. God does not coerce anyone or force anyone to repent and believe. He does not repent and believe for them. When scripture says you must repent and believe to be saved, it it means you must repent and believe to be saved. But then how does God ensure that people will believe in Jesus of their own will without forcing or coercing them to believe? Well, through special grace, what God actually does in special grace is he changes the sinner's nature. He changes their nature. Man has two problems that prevent him from coming to Christ and being saved. First, he will not believe because he doesn't want to. He will not believe because he does not want to believe. Secondly, though, he cannot believe because he's unable He can't believe because he's spiritually dead. Two big problems. One of will, one of ability. And this, I hope this is familiar. I keep saying that, but, you know, we've been away for some time. Man is lacking in will and ability. Ability is the more fundamental problem. That he, He just doesn't even have the ability to believe. But through special grace, God works to bring the spiritual dead to life. God changes or regenerates the sinner's nature and he gives to him or her a new heart, a new mind, a new will. God, in all, makes the sinner a new creature, a transformation. And you know what that does? That restores their ability and their will. Remember the two problems? Ability, will, doesn't want to come, cannot come. Well, God solves those problems sovereignly with this transformation, giving us new ability and a new will, a will to repent and believe. And this new nature, being a work of the Holy Spirit, is then inclined to God. As a sinner's ears are open to the truth, their mind is made to behold the glory of Christ, their heart is enabled to receive him. By God's sovereign grace, they then find Christ irresistible. As they become a new creature, Christ becomes irresistible and they run to him of their own accord and they will be saved. When God makes someone new like this, he calls them to himself. He works effectually so that everyone who is called like this will come, will believe, and will be saved. Just like the baby that is born alive will, by its nature, being alive, draw near to nurse. And so it's for this reason that this special grace is, it's better termed effectual grace. It's effective. It accomplishes what God intends, which is to summon the dead sinner to life, like Christ calling Lazarus up from the grave. First, he brought him to life. Only then could Lazarus obey the command to come forth. He had to come to life first. Well, we'll see that later. I don't want to steal my thunder for later. Anyway, 
It's effective. It always brings about its design, which is to impart new life to the sinner. And this new life both enables and guarantees that the person will turn to Christ and be saved. This is how God's sovereign grace works. If you have trouble understanding this, just remember the basic principle that in Scripture, people always act according to their nature. People always act according to their nature. After the fall, what happened to our nature? Fallen, enslaved to sin and Satan, bound, lost. And so people act according to their nature. They will never go to Jesus because their nature is inclined towards sin and does not want to, and they're unable to. But God, in imparting new life and a new nature to the dead, changes their hearts gives them new desires, desires for God, and a person made a new creature like this, they will then act according to their new nature. And and they will turn to Christ and believe. It's a a common example, but you think of pigs. They love the mud. They they love to wallow in the mud, roll around. They just it's their it's their place, their zone, their happy spot, you know, they're they're happiest in the mud. It's in their nature. To, to go there, to roll around, to live there. Most other creatures, though, do not love to roll around in the mud. It's against their nature. They don't like it. Sheep, for example, don't like to wallow in the mud. It goes against their nature. And so they don't do it. Well, when it comes to God's work of transforming grace, saving grace, he doesn't just take a bunch of pigs and force them out of the mud and make them follow a shepherd and go to green pastures. Rather, he supernaturally takes a bunch of pigs and makes them sheep. He turns them into sheep by a sovereign work of regeneration. And then naturally, they jump out of the mud. They're like, we don't want to be here anymore. They're out of the mud, and they follow the voice of the shepherd, and they go to green pastures. Which is to say they repent of their sins. They believe in Christ. They follow his voice because they've been made sheep. Which comes first? Well, being made sheep comes first. Otherwise, the shepherd calls to these pigs, but they don't come because they're pigs. And they have to be transformed first. This is how God irresistibly works in the hearts of those whom he calls. His sovereign work of regeneration, which is given through his effectual call, ensures that all who receive this special grace will believe and be saved. So again, he's not forcing anyone against their will to come kicking and screaming into the kingdom. But he does sovereignly change their whole nature, which comes with a new will inclined toward God. And, uh, and then they believe of their own will and they are saved. A summary, kind of a historical summary of this, as we've often been doing, is found in the Westminster Confession. And it's a thoroughly you know, classic reformed statement of faith, right? That's what we're studying with the doctrines of grace. That's known as Reformed Doctrine. And so on your notes, I just printed for you from the chapter on the effectual call, a few paragraphs that kind of sum it up. So let's quickly read through this. It says that all those whom God hath predestined to life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed time, effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, 
taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Really good. I mean, that's, that's, what they, that's why they gathered. They put together a really good, concise statement of what this grace is, this special grace. Now, with a little bit of time we have left, we'll do this section, again, kind of quickly, but just to reinforce and to help you further understand the Calvinistic understanding of God's sovereign grace, let's cover some of these characteristics of special grace. Not so we've already mentioned them, but this a little list here will help just kind of drive it home and reinforce how this grace differs from the Arminian view with a few supporting verses here. So let's see if we can make through this list. Some characteristics of special grace. First, it is undeserved. It's undeserved. This grace is truly grace, meaning it's undeserved, it's unmerited. Nothing the sinner does earns or merits this favor from God. And God does not give this grace thinking about any foreseen response in the sinner. It is purely a grace gift. Number two, it is irresistible. This special grace is irresistible in the sense that it always accomplishes God's intention, which is to bring about the salvation of the one to whom it's given. And again, we perform the term effectual, meaning this grace is always successful. And the dead sinner is unable to resist God's summons to life. When God tells the dead sinner to come alive, you can't resist that call. That's God's sovereign work. You know, Isaiah 55, 11, that God's word which goes forth will not return empty or void. It will accomplish his good, his good purposes. And just remember, we'll see this point later, but the same power through which God created the world, i.e. his word, it's that same power which calls sinners to life. It's the power of his word, the power of Christ, the power of gospel, the same power that made the world. It's resurrection power. And when that word goes forth, it's going to accomplish what it attends, and that is to bring sinners to life and point them to Christ by which they will run and be saved. Number three, it is particular. It is particular. Common grace is not. It's given to all people without exception. Common grace. Special grace is particular. It's given to all people without distinction. Meaning, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all the nations. It's given to all people without distinction, but not all people without exception. Which is to say it's, it's particular that God gives this grace according to his hidden will of election. Exodus thirty three nineteen, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. He's talking about saving grace there. And he's, he's going to give it to whom he wants. That's his will and prerogative. Matthew twenty two fourteen, A verse we'll see next week. But 
For Christ said, many are called, few are chosen. Many are called, but only few are chosen. We'll see what that means more next week. You know, John 1.13, where Christ said that the saved, the children of God, they're born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born again. We are saved. We are made new. Not based our, on our own will or blood or by lineage, simply by God's will. It's his will that will be done, and that stands for salvation as well. We're born according to his will. John 5.21, the Son gives life to whom he wills. This imparting of new life from the Son through the Spirit. He gives it to whom he wills. In Galatians 1.15, for example, Paul realized that God had called him through his grace. A particular call and so on. We've seen this. This is really no different than just the doctrine of election, which we, we did several weeks on. And uh, effectual grace, you know, they, they go hand in hand, obviously, that this is the means by which God brings the elect to life. Those whom he has chosen, when the time comes in his plan to bring them to life, well, this is where effectual grace comes in. Number four, it is saving. It is saving This grace, it's the fountainhead from which all the blessings of Christ's atonement flow to us. And this starts with regeneration, but it doesn't stop there. We're regenerated, we're brought to new life, we're then converted, which means we repent and believe. Thereafter, this grace goes on to justify us, to forgive us, to sanctify us, later to glorify us. Which is why scripture speaks of us as thoroughly being saved by grace. Really, from start to finish, we can say it's, it's by grace. Not by works, not by merit, not by our effort. It's God's work, and that's why there's no boasting at all. 2 Corinthians 4.15 mentions how God's grace was spreading to more and more people. And as his grace spread, salvation spread. That's the point. This grace was akin to salvation. Then you have in your notes Ephesians 2, 1-10. We've studied so many times, but you know the verses I'm going to point to. On two occasions, he mentions there, and in, in, uh, was it verse 5 and 8, I believe, for by grace you've been saved. For by grace you have been saved. And salvation is God's gift, his grace gift. It originates with him. He begins the work, and he ends the work as well. That's Philippians 1, 6, that God who began a good work in you will complete it. We'll perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. He started it. He's going to finish it. It's his work. It's his salvation that he gives. That's fundamental to Calvinism, which we believe is just scripture. It's what the Bible clearly says. He starts it. He finishes it. It's sovereign grace. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says how God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but his own purpose and grace. I'll say it again. It's so clear that God saved us and called us. How? Not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace. That's how we're saved and called, by his purpose, his grace. This is saving grace. Let's get through a few more here. Number five, it is abounding. 
thankfully, this grace is more than sufficient to cover our needs. What do we need? Well, we need new life. Thankfully, this grace has the power to bring us to new life. We need forgiveness. That comes in justification. But thankfully, God's grace through the work of Christ is abounding, which is why we can speak of grace greater than all of our sins. That's an encouraging thought. As you think of all your sins throughout life, all that you've done, all the wrong you've committed, that keeps us from God eternally, a chasm we cannot cross. Thankfully, his grace can It's a bridge that's more than sufficient to cross the chasm of your sin, to cover it all, to to take it away from you, to pay for it. His grace is greater than all your sin. And in Christ, you you can be forgiven of all your sin as you turn to him and, and seek his forgiveness. And that's why we praise him for this grace, the grace that brings us to life, cleanses us, forgives us, and draws us, reconciles us to God. 1 Timothy 1.14 speaks of grace, the grace of our Lord that is more than abundant. It's super abundant, overflowing. And in Romans 5.17 and 20, Paul again spoke of how God's grace abounded more and more. As sin multiplied, well, his grace multiplied. Not to excuse us in our sin as if it's okay to just do whatever you want, but it's encouraging to know that you can't out God's grace. Again, we know we don't have a license to sin as if, oh, I guess we can just do what we want now. No. But nonetheless, as we do stumble and fall, still being uh, sinners, we can be forgiven by his grace. Well, these last three, I'll just let you look up the verses on your own. But number six, this special grace originates with God the Father. It originates with God the Father, number six. Number seven, it comes through the work of Jesus, God the Son. And number eight, it's applied by the Holy Spirit. So it originates with God the Father, this grace. God the Father is depicted as the originating source, the dispenser of this grace. Just as salvation, election, atonement is his plan, you might say, originating with him, this will to save some. So this special grace is seen as originating with God the Father, his will to now it's time to bring them to life. So he issues forth this special grace. But number seven, it comes through the work of Jesus Christ. This grace, you could say, channels through the work of Jesus Christ. That this work comes from the Father, but it's seen as then actually channeling to us through what Jesus did. It's the person and work of Christ are the means by which this grace is made real in our lives. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 3, he says, you know, grace to you from God our Father. But in the next verse, he thanks God for the grace which was given you in Christ Jesus. Which just goes to say, although this grace originates with the Father, you don't get it apart from Christ. Like, you have to be in Christ. There's no grace outside of Christ. There's no special grace outside of his person, his work, and thereafter believing in his person and work. It's from the Father, comes through the Son. Finally, number eight, this special grace is applied by the Holy Spirit. It's applied by the Holy Spirit. This we'll really see in the next few lessons how the Spirit really works in this uh, special grace. But uh, Scripture several places teaches 
that it's actually the working of the Holy Spirit to bring us to new life. Just like Christ's resurrection, his coming to new life, Father, Son, and Spirit are all tied in to play a role in that work. So it goes with our spiritual resurrection, which is regeneration. A lot of verses there. I'll leave those for you to look up again on your own. Now, our time for now is pretty much done, but we're not quite finished studying God's grace in salvation. We've established tonight this distinction between common grace and special grace. And it's, it's fair, it's valid. We've seen verses, it's, it's clear in scripture. There is a form of God's grace that's given to all people. It's universal. Not quite how Arminians talk of universal grace. This is a, a universal, common grace. But it's not saving in any way. It doesn't change people. It's just God's goodness and general love to all mankind. That's, that's good, that's fine, that's fair. But scripture also speaks of another form of his grace, a special grace that is different. It is saving, it's effectual, it's irresistible, it's particular. And it's, it's given only to those whom he uh, has chosen. But we, we really need to, even more than we've done, further, I believe, study this and even support the, these claims from Scripture. In other words, can we, can we further establish that it's really efficacious, it's really effectual, it's really irresistible? Where does Scripture say it's, it's only given to the elect, it's really particular, and it really transforms? I think we need a little bit more Bible study to carry this further and, and I think you know, solidify what Scripture says about sovereign grace. So we're going to do that in the next couple of lessons. More specifically, we're going to learn that Scripture teaches that this special grace comes in the form of the effectual call plus regeneration. You've heard those terms, I trust, right? The effectual call, regeneration. These are the, the actual means by which God gives us grace to accomplish new life, to accomplish salvation in us. It starts with this effectual call, which is this divine summons to new life, and that's paired immediately with regeneration, the imparting of new life to the dead, and together, the effectual call and regeneration, they teach us what we need to know about God's grace gift of salvation. Right? Salvation is a grace gift, wouldn't you say? A gift by his grace. We're asking the question, how does that really work and happen? And how does that grace come? How do we receive it? Well, we need to go further, cover the effectual call and regeneration, and then we'll, we'll find out. So we'll do that in the next two lessons. And I don't think we're expecting a baby anytime soon now, so I trust there'll be no more breaks. Of course, God has a way of you know, making you eat your words, so I better be careful. But we'll trust we'll see you next week and we'll carry on with some of those studies and just keep learning more about this, this uh, precious subject of his grace in our salvation. But for now, let's pray. Well, Lord, you are the God of all grace, the Father of mercies, the Son, likewise, the Savior of grace, the one who came and, and this work of giving himself on the cross to give us new life, a work of pure grace, undeserved. We didn't deserve a substitute sacrifice to die for our sins on the cross, to rise from the dead on our behalf that we might be reconciled. We didn't deserve that, nor the Spirit's work of bringing it to us. 
Lord, we confess our sins to you, uh, all of us, uh, how we've fallen short in many ways. But give us a greater vision of your grace and therefore hope in Christ uh, as our only hope. And, and by his grace, through his work, really uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit coming together uh, is our only hope. So we, we want to learn more about this grace. We want to get it right, Lord, that we can magnify your grace. We sing about your grace all the time, but may that be according to knowledge, according to truth. So continue to reveal to us uh, your grace gift of salvation, that we may appreciate it, live it out, and glorify you for it. Until then, we give you thanks and, and ask you to keep us and bless us until next time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.